Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. For the last few years, we've been curating a big event with a leading thinker at the amazing music festival Wilderness. And our guest this summer was the Times journalist Satnam Sanghera. He's the author of two game-changing books about the British Empire and the markets left on modern Britain, Empireland and a companion book for younger readers, Stolen History. Satnam is coming back to How To Academy on the 25th of January to tell us about the sequel to Empireland, Empire World which looks at the lasting effects of empire on other nations around the globe. It's highly likely to sell out, but at the time I'm recording, there are still a few tickets left. So head to our website and pick one up if you're keen. I hope to see you there, and to whet your appetite, here's Satnam at Wilderness, in conversation with Hannah McInnes. Thank you very much indeed for being here in the forum tent. It is the only place to be uh, with your Saturday afternoon at Wilderness, and not just because it's nice and warm and sheltered uh, from the rain. My name is Hannah McInnes. I am delighted to welcome you on behalf of the festival, the forum, and also the How To Academy. I don't know if uh, that many of you know the How To Academy, but if you don't, I suggest you go and look them up after this. Lots of great talks um, that you can find with them. I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to have this conversation today with our guest this afternoon. If you don't know, he has done so much in recent years to start a national conversation. He has educated so many people about something that's so important to understanding who we are as a country, questions about our past that many of us haven't really asked, many of us haven't learnt at school, and many of us know very little about, and that's to do with empire. So that's what we're going to talk about a lot today. Uh, I want to know how many people are here to hear about colonialism and how many people are here to stay dry. (laughs) (laughs) I think I I can work out who's who. (laughs) That is the unspoken question. Everyone is here to talk about empire, uh, hear about empire, obviously. Uh, If you don't know, well, actually, Satnam's just been gloriously introduced as an award-winning journalist. He's the author of a number of books, as you heard. His memoir, uh, Boy With A Top Knot, which was made into a brilliant um, drama in 2017 by the BBC. People are nodding in recognition. They're here for you, not the warmth and and the ray. Uh, And also, as you just heard, Empire Land. If you don't have that book, I highly recommend that you put it instantly on your shelf. And it inspired this book, Stolen History, The Truth About the British Empire and How It Shaped Us with this lovely bulldog on the front, which we might find out about. And Satnam's been recently touring schools with this book um, and doing so much to try and get this subject on the curriculum. So Satnam, thank you very much indeed for coming. Thank you all for being here in the forum. How are you finding the festival? Because I saw a little post on your Instagram yesterday and it just said, oh shit. (laughs) Sorry, children. Well, it's definitely the whitest thing I've ever done. (laughs) I've got got to say that. Uh, if I ex- try to explain this concept, paying money to come here to my Punjabi relatives, I think they would die laughing. Um, you know, Punjabis don't really do camping. We do uh, detached homes in the suburbs, shopping centers, and Mercedes SUVs, not, not camping. Um, uh, also, God, it's so posh here. It's like a giant Waitrose. Look at that. I saw, I saw a man in uh, white chinos. And a pink linen shirt, you know. I actually don't do events like this at the moment because so many people come and shout at me and I thought I'd be quite safe, you know, at a festival. That is quite a liberal audience, but I'm not so sure after seeing Chino Chino Man. Um, I'm sorry if he's here. Uh, But I I love the Chemical Brothers. Amazing light show, right? Did you see it? You didn't, did you? No, I'm afraid I was working uh, elsewhere, but I'm... I missed it. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, amazing light show. Two guys on stage don't know what they were doing. Uh, 
Possibly they were doing their taxes, I think. But great light show. So I should actually say, there's going to be a chance for you to ask your questions. And I want to make sure there is. If I look at my phone, it's not because Satnam is boring me. It's because I want to make sure um, I get the timings right and I can't see a big clock. Um, You say people come and shout at you. In fact, you tweeted a few... Tweet. I don't know if we say tweet anymore. You ext, ext. You ext um, a, few, a few weeks ago. This week, I got two racially abusive letters about my children's book on empire. I also met a student with her parents who is applying to study history at Cambridge, having been inspired by Empire Land. I won't stop this work. So I just wondered what this work is, if you could define it, and what keeps you going. Yeah, I guess it's, you know, talking about things I didn't understand until my mid-40s. Uh, the British Empire, the biggest thing we ever did as a country, explains so much about us, explains our multiculturalism, the reason I'm here, the reason the handful of brown people are here today is because of the British Empire, uh, explains so much about our cuisine, our psychology, our politics, some of our wealth, our museums, and yet I barely taught anything about it at school. And I I, I thought it was, it was just me, but actually I realized there's millions of people who feel the same. And, you know, when I was writing Empire Land, I didn't expect it to to be a well-read book. I did a reading for my friends who were just totally confused by it. And they were like, is this a memoir? Is it a history book? But you're not a historian. And it, it, it just so happened that Black Lives Matter was happening at the time. And suddenly colonialism became one of the biggest issues in the world. And, yeah, I think there's a huge demand for information about it from people. But also there's a huge backlash against it. There's a well-funded campaign supported by most of the right-wing press to stop this research being done, to stop people like me being getting any attention. And people come to events like this and shout at me and uh, or ask the same question again and again and again. And which, is? which is, why don't you talk more about the great things that British Empire did? And like, if you're asking the same question again and again and again, you, and I'm answering it, you don't want an answer. You want me to comply with you. And I'm not going to fucking comply. So you can carry on coming. <laughs> I mean, I was going to come to this later, but you also often get asked alongside, why don't you talk about the great things Empire did about the railways? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a whole, it's called what about tree. It's like, so there's people like David, uh, David Olusoga, William Dranrymple, me, who write about empire in hopefully a nuanced way, uh, reflecting what the experts think. And we're always, there's attempts to shut us down. Questions like, why are you talking about African slavery, transatlantic slavery? Why don't you talk about the Africans who were involved in getting the slaves to the white people? Why don't you talk about what the Belgians did? Why don't you talk about the French empire? Why, don't you, why are you writing about, why you talk so much about the British empire? It's like, well, I'm British. So I'm interested in it. Also, it was the biggest empire in human history. And all this water boutry. And also, why don't you talk about the railways in India? Or, you know, what Michael Portillo talks about endlessly in his, in his white chinos. Red. Uh, red. red chinos <laughs> on BBC Two. Oh, maybe, maybe it was Michael Portillo I saw. He, he loves it's a that kind festival. Of, it's that kind of festival, isn't it? I, I, feel, I feel like I've seen Samantha Cameron about 10 times. <laughs> Uh, in the last 24 hours. But yeah, it's all attempts to shut it, shut the conversation down. And, you know, I get quite a lot of abuse, but David Olusoga has a bodyguard. You know, that's how bad it can get. And I think it's if, if you're a person of color talking about this history, which has a large racial element, you get a, you're, a, you're a target of deep hatred. And people come to hate watch me. And I bet you there's a few people here who've come to hate watch me. But I did an event in India. I thought I'd be safe. And there was a Telegraph writer there who hate-watched me and wrote this vicious piece about me and my kid's book, which hadn't even been published at the time. And she said it was vicious. And I was like, wow, that's amazing, because I've not actually finished it yet. Um, Which goes to show you how much people don't want people like me to talk about it. And also, if you read it, I mean, it's the least vicious thing I've ever read. Very funny, very accessible and absolutely brilliant. And I hope in all the schools. But back to just quickly, let's finish on the railways, because you you haven't given the reasons that it's apart from Michael Portillo fronting all the documentaries about railways and drinking gin and tonics and saying, isn't it all wonderful? You haven't given the other reasons of why it sort of 
quite rightly annoys you that people say, what about the railways every time? Yeah, there's two, th- two reasons. First of all, the railways, they're seen as a gift that the British gave to the Indians. And we have endless documentaries about it. And the Indian railway system is fascinating. But it was built by the British mainly for themselves as a way of getting things out of India, as a way of responding to mutinies and dissent, getting the troops there very quickly. Indians weren't allowed to travel in the finest bits of the Indian railways. They often traveled in third, they always traveled in the third class carriages. Often these carriages were locked and didn't even have toilets, you know. So they weren't a gift that the British necessarily bestowed out of a sense of generosity. It's something they got something out of. So it's a much more nuanced story. But also the other reason why it's annoying is that often the bad sides of empire, I don't like to talk about empire in this way, but it's often said that, you know, the famines, the massacres can be weighed against the railways, as if you can measure miles of railways against millions of deaths. And I just think you can't, me- you can't balance things like that. It's like balancing pears against ostriches. It's, it's just absurd way of looking at history. And we've got to just try to understand this history rather than trying to come to an overall conclusion like it's a, a watch you bought from Amazon and giving it a five-star rating, you know? I mean, you do say a lot, it, it, yeah, it always has to be very binary. It's either good or bad, and no one has any nuance. And that is something missing from so much conversation these days. It's so nice. We've got a bit of, this is the background music to our event. Um, but we'll, we'll focus only on what's coming out of these microphones. Um, you say, though, it was astonishing that I was taught almost nothing about it at school. And it's astounding. It's still not a priority to teach this in history classes today. I don't know. Does anyone here feel they learnt about empire at school? Some people did. Okay. It's not been uh, consistent. It was quite well taught in the 70s. There was like a boom of teaching. And also, there's huge variation across the country. Also, nowadays, huge variation in schools. Because it is on the national curriculum, but it's a very small thing. But if you go to a private school or an academy, they don't have to follow the national curriculum. And I get a sense that it's been taught quite well, well suddenly in the last year or two. Uh, by private schools and academies. And also, it's on the curriculum now in Wales. So there's huge variation in terms of people's ages and also where you grew up. And also, if you're from India or Nigeria, you've probably been taught quite a lot about it. Or China. You know, if you're in China, you've been taught about the Opium Wars, and yet almost no one knows nothing, anything about the Opium Wars in Britain. But you, um, you say, I love, you quoted a tweet in Empire Land, this is from Jason Hickel. If British people understood colonial history half as well as they do the details of Henry VIII's wives, Britain would be a different country. I mean, and it's so true. We all learned endlessly about Henry VIII's wives. We can all, well, I've probably forgotten it now, but, you know, quote how they all died in the rhyme, et cetera, et cetera. But I suppose the important thing is the wider mission. What would it bring to the country if we all had learnt better about empire and the way we did around, about British history and who died when at Hampton Court? Yeah. Actually, no, I'm really interested in who died when at Hampton Court. I read, I read an article this morning about it. Hilary Mantel is my favourite writer. You can do that at the same time as acknowledge history. You can acknowledge, for example, there were black people in Henry VIII's court. You can acknowledge that Elizabeth I was talking about there being too many black people in London in the 1600s. It's important to talk about this stuff because one of the main reasons we're a multicultural nation today is because of the empire. We have scandals every couple of years about race. So the Stephen Lawrence murder, Windrush, both resulted in official reports. Both official reports said we need to teach empire better because then people will understand why we are a multicultural country. Rather than the narrative that I grew up with, which is that brown people arrived very recently taken advantage of British hospitality and the pressure is on them to integrate entirely. Whereas actually the pressure is also, I think, on white people to understand what happened in British Empire and why we're here. Also, I think it's important to understand this history because of racism. I mean, there's a popular view that Britain is beyond racism because we now have Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister, God bless him, with his short trousers. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, You've got a thing about trousers. I know, he's got a People's thing about trousers. trousers. Um, you know, we abolished slavery. We took on the evil racist Germans. But actually, a lot of the racial science that resulted in the Holocaust, I'm afraid to say, had a British tinge. They all emerged in empire. Empire was the most powerful white supremacist exercise in world history, as I argue in my next book, which is going to win me no friends at all. Uh, you know, 
And we've got to talk about that. We were incredibly racist. We weren't always racist, but I think it's important to acknowledge what happened. And I think the biggest scandal is that millions of brown people fought in both world wars. And I was never taught about it. I mean, it's quite common. We don't talk about it. I mean, Bernard Manning appeared on Mrs. Merton's show in 1997 and said, you know, there were no Pakis at Dunkirk. He was correct in that Pakistan did not exist, you know, then. But there were Indians, million. And now we have someone like Lawrence Fox, whose entire fame comes from the fact that he was upset by the sight of a Sikh soldier in a World War I film. But I'm like, if you're upset by that, you've got to be very upset by the history books because there were tens of thousands of Sikhs involved. And I was never taught that. I mean, I sat through dozens of Remembrance Day services in my very racially diverse school and no one said, oh, by the way, your people were there too. It never occurred to anyone. And that, I think, is a massive oversight. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things you say uh, in both books is that it's as a result of selective amnesia, which is where we sort of choose to forget it because particularly in this country, we like to sort of be comforted by history. And you you spoke about Germany then and the really fascinating way in in which Germany faced their history by contrast is so interesting. I mean, I'm not going to try and pronounce your word. You possibly can. It's German word, I can't pronounce it. Gang, hate, shall, something, anyway. Which basically means that that they look at their past and they analyse it and they try to come to terms with it in order to go forward into the future as a sort of better society. Why can't we do that here? Or why do you think we don't do that here so well? Yeah, it's that Neil McGregor quote, is that the Germans look at their history as a way of trying to understand themselves and to navigate the future, whereas the British look at their history for comfort. And history is not a comfortable thing. It's not interested in your feelings. Your feelings are irrelevant. But that is pretty much what we do, isn't it, as a, as a nation? And I think it's been accentuated by what happened in World War II in that we won. And the, the Nazis were really evil. And that allows us to have this idea that we are beyond doing anything bad ever. But, you know, bad things happen all the time. Look at the post office scandal. Look at the five other million scandals that have just happened in the last two years. Bad things happen all the time, and good things. And a healthy nation looks at the history. And I equate it to looking at my family history. I wrote a memoir where I discovered all sorts of really very difficult things about my family. It didn't mean I loved them less. Actually, the fact that I spent a year, two years investigating it was an act of love. And I feel the same about your nation. It's that if you love your country, you look at the history, warts and all to try to understand it in an honest way. That could have been a good title, actually. Warts and all. (laughs) I don't think warts is a big seller as an idea. (laughs) But thanks for the advice. (laughs) Actually, this is a good time for you to mention, which I didn't in the introduction, your upcoming book. Because you're you're still going to tell us about that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sucker for punishment, so I've, I've written a, a sequel to Empire Land called Empire World. I'm franchising the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how British Empire shaped the planet. Uh, mainly because I've been talking about it for two years and I realize there's still huge things I don't understand about the British Empire, like indentured labor. We sent a million Indians around the world. One of the main reasons 
wherever you go in the world, there's Indians. In airports, there's always Indians. It's because we sent a million of them around the world to replace the slaves. I don't think that history is very... I didn't understand that history until very recently. Also, there's questions like, did British Empire really cause a lot of chaos? Is it responsible for most of the chaos in the world? Or did it introduce democracy to the world? Two things that are often said at the same time. Did we introduce the rule of law to the world, which is often claimed? So things like that. Tricky issues. And so I, I've, I've traveled to Nigeria, Mauritius, India, Barbados, uh, to find the answers. One of tricky issues. And Wolverhampton, <laughs> uh, the greatest city on earth. <laughs> Talking of tricky issues, uh, we've discussed this. The, one of the things that always comes up, I know you're going to completely preempt what I talk about or what I say when anyone's having this binary argument about our history is statues. Right. And what to do about statues and whether to take statues down. We've seen some go down, some very much remain. Perhaps you could talk about Clive, um, the statue of Clive, which is outside the Houses of Parliament, um, who he is and whether you think his statue should stay there. Yeah, my, my editor wanted me to write a whole chapter on statues and I, I half wrote it. And as I was writing, I was like, I don't, fundamentally, I don't care. Because and I've been writing about all these big issues like racism, economics, the amount of money we made from empire, and then statues. Statues are street furniture. We don't notice them. We've only just started noticing them now. So I don't really care about statues, but I think some of them are interesting and nothing more than that. The Clive statue is interesting because it's, it's in Whitehall, the several Clive statues. There's one in Shrewsbury, there's one Tell in Whitehall. Tell everyone, um, if they don't know who Clive is. Clive of India. A man so famous or infamous, he only needs one name. Like Kylie. Yeah. Beyonce. Kylie of India. Clive of India was the man who arguably started the Raj. He was the uh, most successful leader of the East India Company. And he got things going in India, arguably by exploiting people to an extreme degree. He made the equivalent of 700 million pounds in a very short time. Bought up several stately homes. Bought, a, obviously, a seat in Parliament but wildly unpopular in his lifetime. You know, he killed himself, and Samuel Johnson famously said he killed himself because he was so ashamed of the crimes he committed. It was commonly said that he'd caused famine in India and he'd caused the death of millions. But now, in the Victorian age, he was rehabilitated as a great man, as the man who started the great British Empire, you know, in India, and he's a hero for some people now. So now there's a culture war over this statue which actually Richie Sunak looks at every day. You can see it from the back of Downing Street, or at least from the back of the Treasury. And I find that really interesting. I wonder what he thinks, given he doesn't think much about these things, probably nothing. Um, but, you know, this is a man who thought Hindus and Indians were lower than, as low as animals, you know. And he's widely unpopular in India, Widely popular at the time. When the statue was put up, the viceroy of India said it was a bad idea because it was, quote, needlessly provocative. And this is what we forget. We forget that every single bad thing we talk about nowadays and we say, oh, you know, the woke, the woke are talking about it. We shouldn't judge it by modern standards. At the time, there were hundreds of British people objecting to these things. Clive of India was dragged in front of Parliament and had to justify himself for days on end. His successor, Warren Hastings, had to, I think, appeared in front of Parliament for several years. You know, there's a, there was an endless inquiry. It was a bit like Brexit. It just never ended, you know. And we forget that. Everything that British Empire involved was opposed at the time. And that itself is a proud imperial tradition. So when people say you should be proud of empire, it's like, okay, I'll be proud of the bits where people said it was shit. You know, it, it makes no sense. No, I, I think it's so interesting what you uh, bring up there about this word woke that now is used sort of largely as a derogatory term. And this modern thing that, the, you know, people are drawing attention and people are condemning these times. And at the time, you would have called half of those people the same word if, oh if God, you go the, by those standards. The anti-abolitionists were the wokest people alive. I, just, I think if anyone says woke to me, present company accepted, I stop listening. Because I'm like, you've, you've, stopped, you've just chosen to not be a serious person. Basically, you're just throwing words around. I think there's left-wing equivalents. People who, who throw the word neoliberalism aloud without really knowing what it means. Or 
you know, gammon. You know, I'm like, you've actually stopped thinking. You just want to insult people. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of being woke in the sense of it being the way it was used originally. Socially being aware. Awake, socially aware. And my God, the empire was full of hugely socially aware people. George Orwell. My God, he was wokest, the wokest Britain alive. He was railing against empire and he was part of it. And read, the, read his essay, Shoot the Elephant or Shooting the Elephant. It's an incredible, still one of the most powerful diatribes against empire. But also there were really good people involved in empire. Virginia Woolf's grandfather, an incredible man. He was basically administrated empire for his whole life, you know, more than any other secretary of state. And he did his best to make abolition work, but also to reintroduce the rule of law. There were really good people involved. It's just there are also really bad people involved. And so opposite things can be true at once, people. This is the thing. This is the idea that I think can liberate us all in every culture war there is. Opposite things can be true at once. Your mother can be incredibly annoying and you can love her intensely. Opposite things can be true at once. <laughs> Yeah, if you take anything away from this hour and everywhere, that is just... The incredible. Chemical Brothers, great live act. <laughs> at the same time, two guys at laptops, you know? What's that about? <laughs> um, actually, I interviewed Susie Dent, who, get, who sort of feels like she's in charge of which, which words are allowed in and out of the dictionary last weekend. And I petitioned for woke to just disappear. Yeah. She said, sadly, it can't. I, I'm sorry to talk about statues when you don't care about statues. The only thing I just was interested in well, last time we spoke was your solution about throwing tomatoes. And I just thought, we've got a tent full of people here who might be up for that. Yeah, yeah. I, my idea is, okay, if we're going to have to do something about tomatoes, sorry, about <laughs> statues and fucking tomatoes, tomatoes that don't, don't need to be used. Sorry, there's children here, sorry. Uh, what we should do, because people want to vent their anger, is have an annual day. You know, they have that Spanish festival where people throw tomatoes. We should have an annual day where we're allowed to throw tomatoes at the statues we hate. You know, it's very therapeutic. We learn stuff about why we hate stat particular people or like them or whatever. And there's some food waste, I guess. Uh, but it's better than this endless, tedious argument about statues, which I don't think is that important. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like going around to schools. Are kids more receptive than adults? Do they shout at you? I'm sure they don't. <laughs> kids are really interesting. A, it's much more fun talking. Present company accepted. Well, they don't generally shout at you. Uh, kids age 9 to 12, again, present company accepted, really smell. I didn't realize... <laughs> They have uh, yet to discover, sorry, mate, they've uh, yet to discover deodorant and self-consciousness and uh, talking to them in the summer on a Friday afternoon in a sports hall. Oh, my God. It's really full on. But, they, yeah, they're very receptive. Also, the questions they ask are wild. You know, they, uh, who's your favorite footballer? How much do you earn? Occasionally a few questions about empire, but yeah, I, I look, the questions are absolutely fantastic. And what do you, there's a section in Stolen History about what can I do, which is obviously aimed at the children who read it, but of course it's aimed at parents. There's, I'm sure, so many parents in this tent. What do you say, you know, what can they do? One of them is ask questions. Yeah, I guess, you know, um, with this culture war, I think the answer is, First of all, accepting that opposite things might be true at once, which is an idea I, kids age 12 can actually get their heads around because they're conflicting feelings about a lot of things, not least their parents. But yeah, I think it's about trying to keep it civilized and not turning everything into a horrible argument. We don't have to fall out about this stuff. There's ways to talk about it. The problem is the online discourse is, is coming into real life and people are talking the way they talk on Twitter in real life. And yeah, and eggs and... Uh, did you say eggs? I said X. It's called X. Now. Oh, X. Sorry, I said eggs, yeah. <laughs> People throwing X's around everywhere and... Uh, yeah, and, and, and death threats. And so I think kids are actually better equipped because they usually haven't been exposed to social media yet. And they're quite good at talking about stuff. And yeah, they might be the answer. I mean, you talk about that and you have made sort of like, sort of joked about it and brought it up at the beginning. Um, I interviewed you once with William Dalrymple and he mentioned that as a white man writing about this stuff, he get, has never once been questioned. And he said, you get kind of post bags. I don't know. I, that's not an exaggeration, but 
you do keep going in the face of some pretty extraordinary abuse. Yeah, it, it, uh, you know what? It's when William said that, and he was quoted in the newspaper, that I had a real moment because I'm a I'm a macho journalist, and we all get every journalist gets abuse, right? And I just thought it's part of the job, but the, I'm also one of the few columnists of color on Fleet Street, and it made me realize that actually racist abuse is different. It's really dehumanizing. And I realized when he said that, and my peng- and Penguin asked me if I was okay, it was the first time in my career anyone has ever asked me if I was all right. And I got really upset. I was like, oh God, maybe I'm not okay. Maybe I'm just being, and I realized actually I wasn't okay. And it was really getting to me. And now it's like I'm technically taking six months off before the next book because it does take a toll. When you go to events and people come at you, it's great for the event because it makes everyone very animated and people shout at each other. My books sell out. It feels like <laughs> feels like this, the, this, the issue really matters. But I found that I was really drained and I started dreading the events. And I'd be looking around the audience thinking, who's it going to be? And it was never the person I thought it was going to be. And it's not always an old white guy. It's sometimes an old brown guy because <laughs> there's huge imperial nostalgia in Indian communities. There's one, probably my most persistent troll is a Sri Lankan man in his 70s. He's possibly here today. <laughs> uh, he more comes to every event I do. He comments on every single article I write. Fernando, declare yourself. <laughs> he will sooner or later. And now it's become a joke. I'm like, okay. And he asks me the same question. Why didn't you talk about the great things that the British did to Sri Lanka? I don't know. If he's here, why don't you tell us the great things that the British did for Sri Lanka? I can accept that the British did great things in parts of the empire. I'm not denying that. But also, we've got to talk about the other stuff. You know, you can talk about both things. Yeah, actually, we haven't mentioned one of the things that many people don't know about the Nationality Act, when people are saying, you know, why are you here? Or, you know, what you have been told, why don't you go back to where you came from? And you give children the answer to that question in the book if they're told that. But the Nationality Act is quite a surprising to lots of people. I didn't learn about that. Yeah, I think it's probably the, one of the, mo- probably the most important, but one of the most important pieces of legislation of the 20th century, and we don't know about it. It's 1948 Nationality Act. It's an insane piece of legislation because basically it said that all the citizens of empire were citizens of Britain. We're talking about 600 million people. <laughs> Obviously quite impractical, but people then started to come. They didn't expect people to come. The people on the Windrush came under the act as citizens, right? And they came as British people. This is very poorly understood. So poorly understood that actually this is resulted in the Windrush scandal. We are deporting people who came here as citizens or the children of British citizens back to countries they barely know or don't know. That's why the Windrush is such a scandal. The level of, if you read the report, the level of knowledge in the civil service is so low that they didn't know about this act. (laughs) You know, that's incredible. That's why we need to talk about this stuff. And the official report said part of the answer is we need to put civil servants through compulsory training to tell them about why people are here, because we had an empire, and the government agreed to put through those recommendations in full, and Rishi Sunak and Kemi Bedenok and all those scumbags have basically backtracked and said we're not going to do it. So I can predict, like clockwork, there'll be another scandal in five years' time where we talk about this stuff again, and how we don't, people don't have basic knowledge about British Empire and the 1948 Nationality Act. On a sort of potentially positive note, but you might not have a positive thing to say about it, do you think things are changing? I I feel like there is, um, as well as you doing extraordinary work, books in schools, you have changed the curriculum, haven't you? Uh, I know hundreds of teachers are using Empire Land and 15,000 copies were given away to teachers. But this government, basically they've fought a culture war on why we should be proud of British Empire. They're not going to give me space in the curriculum but as i said the academies don't need to follow the curriculum private schools don't need to and yeah i feel like you know my book i don't want people to teach my book i want people to read the bibliography and use the books in the bibliography and start talking about the issues i mean when i met that kid the other day who said i'm going i'm going to apply for history at cambridge and your book has inspired me have you got any advice i said don't go and say that don't say that because 
what they want to know is that you are critical, that you are looking at the evidence. You need to point out the problems with my book. And there are problems with it. And that's what I, my, my fantasy is that a young person reads it and then comes up with all the reasons why it's wrong, perhaps, and why they disagree. This is what we need in this world. We need people to look at what the experts are saying. You know, I want people to quote the imperial historians who spend their lives looking at this stuff. You know, they're in my bibliography. I want them to read those books and not read what random people are saying in the as culture warriors in our, in our newspapers. You do say those books are very long, though. Sorry, I, you were about to clap, and I interrupted. One person was about to clap. <laughs> you clap hardly. And, uh, she might be a relative, frankly. <laughs> so, it doesn't count. Are you? <laughs> I've got a very big family. No, no. <laughs> you did say at the beginning your family would not come here. There is, actually. My niece is here. If you, you'll find her. She's the most horrified-looking person in the whole of wilderness. She's here with my girlfriend. They're both Asians, and yes, they are here. But only because they got free tickets. That's the thing. It's the, it's a way out. It's weighing between doing something which is very un-Asian and a freebie which is very Asian. So uh, they're torn. I, I, I sidetracked in my last question, which was to say, generally speaking, do you think this conversation is being had more at the moment in a positive way? And do you feel positive looking to the future that this is a conversation that's starting to happen more than it has? Yeah, and actually the, the focus on, you know, the, all the death threats and stuff is, uh, it, I realise I can't let it occupy my mind because the reaction has been 90% positive, you know. It's an, it's an incredible thing where... As a writer, you write something and two years later, kids are going to university because of your book or people are reading it in schools. And that, I, I, I don't think that happens. I don't think most writers don't experience that in their lifetime, let alone within a year or two. So I'm, I'm trying with the help of several therapists to focus on the positive. <laughs> um, and there's a reason I carry on because it's people are reading and, you know, there's, it's not just me, it's a movement. It's like the Empire podcast with William Dalrymple and Ethan Nand. It's, it's uh, Instagram accounts like Brown History. It's, 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 this, it's a huge subject. And I don't think you can put it back in its box. It's going to be, I think, one of the biggest issues of the next 20 years. And people are going to keep on talking about colonialism. It's my turn to shut up now and to um, hand the mic over to the audience. Um, lots of questions. Great. Now, I think we've got... Who, who's, got the, who, who's running around with mics? Brilliant. Um, let's try and get in as many as we possibly can. So question here. I just want to ask a question because you mentioned Kylie uh, and uh, being Australian and you talk about imperial nostalgia. Now, I've lived in this country for 30 years, but I go back to Australia quite a lot and there's been a lot of referendums in Australia. They love a referendum. At the moment, there's a referendum about whether Indigenous First Nations Australians should have a voice in Parliament, which you would think would be a no-brainer. There's been a lot of referendums about whether Australia should become a republic and it cannot become a republic. It's not. It's refusing, you know. So why do you think that is? Is it some kind of giant Stockholm syndrome or, you know, what is this thing that Australia, that a country on the other side of the world still has these ties to, to the old country, as my uncle used to call it? Well, it has ties to the old country because that's what it is. It's still a settler colony, you know. Its continued existence depends on denying First Nation people their land. <laughs> you know, they, it involves rejecting their, their claims for recognition. It re involves rejecting their right claims for democracy. So it continues to remain a colonial creation. So obviously, it's going to remain connected to the, to the <laughs> royal family, you know. It's... It is what it is, you know, it, and I've been really researching a lot about Australia for the next book and my God, the white Australia policy, which is very poorly understood in Britain, is crazy. And the white Australia policy where they basically banned all brown people, there are already brown people there who, who travel as part of indentured laborers. They just got rid of everyone. And that policy then became a totem for Americans, for British people, for Canadians. And this is the way in which imperialists and colonists spread white supremacy around the world. And even today, Australia's very severe immigration policy is a totem for us. The barges that we've got, the Rwanda policy is inspired by Australia. So I would say Australia is an incredibly important slice of the imperial story, especially when it comes to race. 
But Kylie's great. <laughs> <laughs> and also, hopefully you'll come back next year when the new book is out, or then we can talk about... It depends on how many death threats there are. Yeah. And, uh, well, no one's shouting at you in here. Security. And if they do, they'll be in serious trouble. Um, hi, I'm a history student, and I've studied British Empire uh, twice, once when I was very young and once very, very recently. And I noticed that when I was very younger, um, it was sort of a one-track narrative, this is what happened. But it was only recently, thanks mainly to a specific history teacher, that um, we learned about historiography and discussions, and we were critically like analyzing it and coming to our own conclusions and learning the facts and everything but um a lot of my friends haven't done history since they were 13 because you don't have to do it and they've never had these opportunities to uh critically analyze so they've gone away thinking yes it was uh, the indian mutiny it was never a war of independence like that's what they were told so what do you think the solution is to develop this critical critical thinking when without completely upheaving how we do education in this country. Yeah, I mean, you raise a very important issue, and this is why I think people get very angry, because your people you know were taught a one-track version of history. People in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I've had a look at some of the textbooks. The stuff they were taught, as late as the 1950s, they were being taught that black people wouldn't work because they were inherently lazy and they had to be had the threat of compulsion, i.e. slavery. In order, This had been taught in the 1950s and 60s. Empire Day was a big thing in Northern Ireland until the 1970s, you know? And this is why when people like David Yorisoga, Ramon me come along and say, actually, it was more complicated, people get very, very upset because it's part of their identity. They might have had family involved in the British Empire, and they're like, what are you saying? Are you saying my relatives were scumbags? It's like, I'm not saying that. They might have been great people, but the, the, some bad things happened. And I think what we need is the opposite of what Rishi Sunak is suggesting, is we need people to do the humanities and develop critical analysis skills. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, conspiracy theories, but... I think this is a large part of the of the battle against the humanities. It's like to stop people analyzing why governments are doing terrible things and why we need to learn how to work out if a politician is telling the truth or work out whether our teacher is talking complete shit. <laughs> Actually, it was just in, in terms of um, what you learned first when you were 13, I do remember when we were last speaking, it'd be interesting to see um, who learned about the black hole of Calcutta. Okay. Not that many. Do you, uh, William was saying everyone learned about that as the classic whataboutery. Yeah, in the black hole, if you don't know about it, the island, this island story, which was the most popular history book around for kids for decades, David Cameron's favourite book, who would have thought? Uh, barely covers the empire, it's but it does there. have a section on the black hole of Calcutta. And this is an incident that happened in a very early part of, of the East India Company, around the time of Clive India, where a bunch of Brits were taken uh, hostage and put in an underground jail. And the idea, hundreds of them were packed together and the Indian guards watched them uh, die out of suffocation and overheating and so on. And you, you read that account and you're like, oh my God, the Indians are terrible people. But there's nothing else to balance it. And also, if you look into the history, it didn't really happen. It didn't happen in that way. The numbers involved were wildly exaggerated, and the British people did some things which were pretty similar and pretty awful. And it was a much more complicated story. But if that and the Indian Mutiny is the only thing you've ever known about the British Empire, again, you're going to be shocked when you find out some facts, you know. And you, it's going might it might really upset you. But that was pretty much what a whole generation of men, particularly in private boarding schools, were taught about empire. Uh, Satnam, can I ask you about the uh, honours system? So at some stage, you will be uh, offered an OBE, a CBE, or a knighthood. Not, not under this current government, obviously, but uh, at some stage. And were you to accept, you would be uh, a member of the most noble order of the British Empire. Uh, a number of my uh, charity colleagues are running a, ca a campaign to try and change the word 
uh, of empire to excellence because we think there's still validity in having an award system but not under the name of the empire so my question really two bits one when the letter comes from the cabinet office what's your reaction to it and b do you think the campaign that i just mentioned has merit i i'm not going to get an honor i pretty positive from this government uh i mean even when i talk to government departments i i have often been told not to say anything critical of of this government's policies which is impossible i'd say it anyway people like me are banned from talking to this government if you've been following the story there's a whole speakers list of people who are banned and um and yet this government go on and on about freedom of speech but in terms of the honor system i know people a lot of people reject honors um benjamin Ze- benjamin zephaniah did nikesh shukla did and i totally respect that but i actually haven't got a problem with it cuz I'm in the world of talking about nuance. So I am saying fundamentally opposite things can be true. So I'm saying Bichempa involved good and bad. I'm also thinking about the millions of people or brown people who fought for empire, you know, in both world wars by rejecting it. Am I saying their deaths were futile? You know, so I actually don't have a huge problem with it and I think if you're saying I'm not, I don't want anything to do with that that's not the business i'm in i'm not i actually have a problem with sashi thrower's book you know which massive bestseller talks about all the crimes committed by british empire upon india actually i don't think it's unnuanced it's as unnuanced as nigel bigger's colonialism book which is saying empire was brilliant i'm in the difficult centrist area where everyone hates me <laughs> you know the left and the right <laughs> Well only the people who haven't read it to discover that you're you know in the nuanced area they've criticized you before they've read it I expect. No I mean I've definitely had left wing people say the book is not angry enough and I've been colonized it's, it's, it's fair enough. Hello it's Vass here recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Hi, um, thank you, Satnam. It's been so interesting uh, listen, listening to everything. Um, so I listened to Stolen History in the car with my son, who's nine, and... Um, I think as a white person, I did feel uncomfortable and I felt, ooh, my identity is saying that this this shouldn't have happened because it goes against everything I believe in. But then my son was asking loads of questions and getting really into it and wanted to understand more. And of course, up until the age of nine, he's not been taught anything about it. So when you say you're going into schools and you're getting that feedback from the teachers, can I hope... Would you think that by the time he reaches DCSE age, Empire will be part of the curriculum? Because I think it gave me so much more understanding of why I'm here and why I might feel awkward about certain things, but also more accepting of the fact that, do you know what? Like you say, the good and the bad. And it's not about not talking about it. It's about talking about it more. And I'm just interested, do you think in the next four or five years... Is it going to be part of the curriculum? Is it going to be part of the GCSE curriculum? I don't know about the politicians because they're in charge. And, you know, we've had Michael Gove saying he wanted to teach about, teach your kids about the achievements of empire. We had Jamie Corbyn saying he wanted to teach kids about the crimes of empire. And I think both are on a way forward. I don't think the current party political situation doesn't fill me with hope. But the kids do. History teachers do. I think they're teaching anyway. And I find it interesting the way you talk about your discomfort. I think if it's discomfort, it's okay. But if you're feeling guilty, that is not relevant. A lot of people say, oh, God, I felt so guilty. It's not your fault. You're not responsible for the massacre of 1919. It had nothing to do with you. I'm not trying to inspire guilt. No historian is trying to do that. It's not about your feelings. We're trying to get people to understand this history, that's all. It's not about feelings. And yet, the problem is, the politicians are always saying it's about feeling. It's about, if you want to be proud, if you're proud of being British, you've got to be proud of this history. It's like saying you need to be proud of Marquis or 
the sky. It's a really absurd. It's too complex to be have proud feelings or guilty feelings. But I think it will change. But it, the answers won't be driven by politicians. They'll be driven from grassroots by kids, teachers who I think are doing amazing work. But I talk to history teachers, and but they are facing a really difficult situation. It's almost as bad as in Florida. I mean, some of them talk about parents coming in and saying, "Why are you telling me? Why are you, why are you teaching my kids that white people were evil?" Why are you teaching my kids that they enslaved black people? Why are you telling my kids that Enoch Powell was wrong? Because he was right. And I asked, a history teacher asked me, what should I say to that parent? And it's like, you know what, I don't know. I don't know how you encounter, but the culture war that is online is happening in the classrooms. And what's happening in America with books being banned and classrooms being the front wall of the culture war is happening here. People going, there's a survey out recently which said that people are going into libraries and saying to librarians, saying, why are you stocking this woke book? Or why are you stocking this racist book? You know, and we need to fight this, you know, from both sides. Salam, thank you very much for a, a, a fabulous presentation so far. Um, my question is... Uh, if we were as a country to embrace uh, the study of empire in the nuanced way that you uh, you uh, advocate in your in your book and in your words what would be the most important observable differences in this country as a result of that very good question uh, i think the debate about this in the debate, the way we talk about it in the media, would become sane. It's absolutely insane at the moment, where you've got things like the National Trust commissioning an actual historian to do some research, and there being a sustained campaign from the think tanks, the Daily Telegraph, to portray this historian as a woke maniac. She just did some history. And if you're into freedom of speech, why are you so against some research being done? That's the most important thing, because I think that dictates the culture in all sorts of other ways. But I think also Remembrance Day, the way we talk about World War II changes. That's a really hard thing, because we we're so fixated on World War II. It's a defining thing of who we are. Brown people don't get any kind of entryway into the World War II story, do they? And I think that's really important. And yeah, I would want to see empire up there alongside the Tudors and World War I and World War II, which are really important issues and I'm really fascinated by them. But also the thing I would really like to see more than anything else is for the TV and film industries to reflect this history. All we ever see in history is World War II, World War I, the Tudors, maybe some imperially nostalgic stuff about the Raj. There's so much rich history about the Raj, about the mutiny, about what happens happening in Australia, Malaya. It's like, why don't we make films about that? Because I think popular culture could change this, the way we see this history. And that's one thing that Germany does with World War II. They repeatedly come back to the story, not only in their schools, in public conversations, but also through their films and their art. And so films like Downfall and so on. And we need that kind of stuff about the railways. You tried, didn't you, to pitch your railways documentary? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've pitched it four times. They're always interested, and then they lose interest when they find out that Michael Portillo's not involved. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to start wearing uh, red trousers to my meetings. That's, that's the, clearly my mistake. Thank you for the question. I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't realize there were people behind me. So that's quite rude, isn't it? And there's quite a lot of people there. I know, we, have, we can't spin around too much. I keep forgetting where I sent the mic. There, there we go. Um, hello. I wondered what you thought about the um, where do you come from debate. The question, where do you come from? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I've got a, a probably predictably got complicated opinions about this because people, people who are not from here or visibly different often get asked, where are you from? And you go, Britain. They go, well, come on, where are you from, really? Which village in the Punjab? Um, and it is annoying and it's, people say it's racist, but the problem is I do it. If I was talking to you, I'd want to know. And I think it's actually, to a certain degree, a reflection of curiosity. And I think there's ways to ask the question politely, and there's ways to be quite racist about it, and it's obvious when, which vibe it is. So I actually don't inherently have a problem with the question. Where are you from? 
seriously, where really? So it depends how it's asked. And sometimes I say Manchester, and then sometimes I say, oh, uh, what do you mean originally? And then India. So it's, uh, it's I, know, I don't actually find it offensive at all. Yeah. I just say Wolverhampton, and that's a conversation killer. <laughs> I find no one, wants, no one wants to ask another question. And then I say, if they do, I say I work for the tax office, and then uh, the cabbie gets very quiet. I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't have the microphone because it's not a question so much as an observation. I loved what you said about statues. I'd not thought of it from that perspective. But in Cockermouth, in North, in the Lake District, there's a great big white man in the middle of the town square in marble. And I think if you read the small print, he was done in by the dastardly Indians. It's not Michael Patillo, is it? No, but <laughs> what it says on it in huge print is just mayo. M-A-Y-O. And so therefore, I think everybody who sees it just laughs, doesn't bother to read the small print, and this man is reduced to the status he probably deserves. And Thank probably you. A, and a traffic cone on his head every... every yeah, and that's the thing, you don't notice them. But also, I did go to Shrewsbury for my documentary, and I met the modern-day Clive of India, who inherited his title. I can't remember. Is it Lord Powys, I think? And, uh, you know, expected him to be very defensive about the statue. And he was like, take that piece of crap down. I hate it. He was a scumbag. And uh, he, he himself had gone to India to personally apologize. And I thought that was a really powerful thing. I, like I was saying, he didn't need to feel personally guilty. Although you, there's a case to be made if you're living on the wealth made by these people there is a degree of responsibility you, you might feel. But yeah, he renounced the whole thing. And I think it's people like that who are helping us make the conversation more interesting rather than making it a binary thing. So just a quick question. Um, you talked about like storytelling is the most powerful thing to get things across to people, especially kids. So I'm not sure if anyone saw Roots. That was like my opening, awakening to British culture. For you, what would you say if everyone could leave here today and watch a film to learn more about Sikh involvement empire? What would you suggest? I say, Mike, the first thing I watched with my missus over there was Viceroy House. And I had no idea about partition between in India and that opened my eyes. So what would you suggest? Gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to give you a poor answer because like I was saying just now, I don't think there are a huge number of very good documentaries about, I mean, Gandhi the film was the only portrayal I've ever seen of the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. And yet it's such an important episode. I would say, if you can face it, read some history books. Um, and then make some films. It's, it's such a, I don't understand because it's really popular as a subject. Kids are really into it. I think it, stuff would do really well. And yet, the problem is the film industry and TV industry is very conservative, mainly because it's very expensive to make anything. So they won't make anything unless it's already been a hit. So the st Viceroy's House, I think, didn't do very well. So there probably hasn't been another one for that reason, you know. But the moment we get something, but also like something like Black Panther, which has a really interesting scene where one of the participants goes into the British Museum and takes an artifact out. That was one of the biggest films in history. And it's interesting, that didn't inspire loads of new stuff. So I can't explain it. We just need more and more of this stuff. But people will find inspiration in books. And also, I've suddenly realized there's a spate of really good novels written about brown people who were involved in empire. So it's not all about William Wilberforce and, and Clive of India. So Zadie Smith's new novel is about a person of color. Uh, there's a great novel written by Joseph Patterson about Ignatius Sancho, one of the first, one of the black abolitionists. And suddenly novelists are taking on this subject, which is exciting to see. Thank you for your question. Uh, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for. I, I should say that actually Satnam's other accolade is that he's one of the chapters in Elizabeth Day's book showing that men and women can be friends and nothing else. And Elizabeth Day is going to be on here in um, an hour's time. But um, thank you all very much for brilliant questions. Thank you so much for coming. Satnam, keep doing your amazing stuff. We love you a lot. This episode starred Satnam Sangera and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producers were Esme Bright and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. 
Do check out our new event with Satnam on the 25th of Jan. All the details are at howtoacademy.com. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>